Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Looking at Ephesians chapter 4, and if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that Paul's been calling us in Ephesians chapter 4 to walk worthy of our calling. Now, of course, if we're going to walk worthy of our calling, we need to know what our calling is. And so as a reminder, our calling in Christ is to dwell together as one people in fellowship with God for all eternity. And two weeks ago, we saw Paul call us in the first part of this chapter to walk in unity with one another as one people in Christ. He called us to live with one another in a bond of peace since Christ has saved us and reconciled us to one another by his one spirit through faith. Then last week, Paul urged us to walk worthy of our calling by using the gifts that Christ has given us to minister to one another so that the body of Christ, the church, is built up. Last week, we we saw this pattern that God has ordained for the church, a, a pattern in which the building up of his people happens when every believer ministers to one another with the gifts that Christ has given them as they are equipped by the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But now in verses 13 through 16 that we want to look at this morning, Paul goes on to describe in more detail what it looks like for the church to grow and to mature. That's our focus this morning. I'll start reading in verse 11 so that we can get the full context, but follow along with me as we read Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for this word, this word that you have given us. Would you continue to speak to us by your spirit? This morning, would you use your word to build up your people for the glory of your name? And we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. Early in my time as youth pastor here at Westminster, I I led a a small group of of high school guys in a a study on what it means to be a godly man. We looked together at God's call to be husbands and fathers, to be servants and leaders, to pursue godliness with humility and self-control. And I remember at the end of this study a number of years ago, one of 
the young man came up to me and he said, you know, this study was very helpful because no one's ever told me before what it means to be a godly man. You know, it's very hard to pursue something when you don't know what it is you're pursuing. And we see that in a number of areas of life. That's, that's why I think young athletes watch professional athletes to see what they do and how they do it and to try to imitate them. That's why mentors are so helpful for us in work or in life. They, they give us a concrete vision of what it is we're striving for. And so it's particularly helpful that Paul, when he comes to Ephesians 4, doesn't just say, hey church, grow up. But he takes the time now, in the verses we're looking at today, to give us more detail, to describe what spiritual maturity looks like so that we know what we're pursuing and how to pursue it together. So I want to start by looking at verses 13 and 14 this morning, where Paul describes in more detail what the church is aiming for, what maturity in the church looks like. If you look there in verse 13, you'll see that the first mark of spiritual maturity that God calls his church to attain is unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now this word unity has shown up quite a bit here in Ephesians chapter 4. And to this point so far, Paul has largely talked about unity as something God's people already have since we are bound together in one spirit through our shared faith in one Lord. But while our unity has been secured for us by Christ, the church is also to attain or to grow up into its unity, knowing that we will not fully attain it until we are perfected in the last day. And so Paul describes the unity that God's people should pursue as it seeks to attain what God has called it to. He describes unity as the unity of the faith. Unity of the faith refers to what we believe. It refers to the doctrines that have uh, been handed down to us. Maybe you think of Jude, verse 3, which talks about the faith once delivered to all the saints. And so unity of the faith is our shared commitment to the doctrines or the truths sent down by Christ and his apostles. Unity of the faith is being faithful together to the word of God. We are to grow as God's people to seek to attain this unity and this shared commitment to God's truth found in his word. Unity of the knowledge of the Son of God then refers to the relationship that we have with Jesus himself. Unity of the knowledge of the Son of God is not head knowledge, but relational knowledge. Like when we say, oh yes, I know John. We're not claiming to know a bunch of facts about John. We're claiming to have a relationship with him and to know him. That's the kind of knowledge that Paul's talking about here. It's the kind of knowledge he talks about in Philippians chapter 3 as well when, when he says that his desire is to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Paul is urging unity around this shared fellowship and relationship and intimacy with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I think this is a great lesson for us in how the church grows in unity. A mature unity amongst God's people does not primarily come from looking at one another and focusing on one another, but by focusing together on the doctrines of our faith and by drawing together to relationship with the Son of God. The theologian A.W. Tozer famously noted that if you wanted to get 100 pianos, 
in perfect tune with one another, you would not bring the hundred pianos into a room and start trying to tune them back and forth to one another. You'd end up with chaos and only partial success. What you would do is you would get one tuning fork and you would tune all 100 pianos to the same tuning fork and then they would also be tuned to one another. And so Tozer says, 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn away from God and just strive for better fellowship with one another. See, Christ is everything. Christ is the one who became man. Christ is the one who died in our place and shed his blood for our sins that we might be saved and reconciled to God if we would put our faith in him. And Paul longs for the church as as a whole to attain a mature unity as we look together to Christ, our tuning fork, and join our lives together as we look to him. You know, I think if we would pause and summarize all that Ephesians 4 tells us about our unity as God's people, I think we could summarize it with three things. Paul first said that all who trust in Christ are, as a matter of fact, reconciled to one another and united together by his Spirit. That is a fact. But then God's people are to maintain that unity in practice by living with one another in humility and with patience, bearing with one another in love and forgiving one another, to maintain in practice the unity that we have. But then thirdly, God's people are to seek to attain greater unity with one another as we strive together for a shared commitment to the truths of the faith once delivered to all the saints, and as we draw near to Christ together, growing together in the knowledge of the Son of God. We have a unity with one another. We're to maintain that unity with one another. And we are to seek greater unity as God's people around the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That's the first mark of what we're headed for, what we're to aim for as the church as we pursue maturity. And then if you continue to look at verse 13 in the second half, Paul gives us a second mark of the maturity of the church. And he calls it a mature manhood. A mature manhood, maybe we could say a a full-grown spiritual adulthood whose stature has attained the fullness of Christ. Now, if you've been tracking with us in Ephesians, this is the third time that Paul talks about the fullness of Christ. Well, what does he mean by the fullness of Christ? It's clearly the goal that God's people are looking forward to. When Paul talks about the church being filled with the fullness of Christ, he is talking about the full character of Christ being formed in his people through the full presence of Christ with us. And the astounding truth that the Bible emphasizes again and again is that God did not save us to experience a a few drops of his goodness or of his character. No, when God's people, when the church arrives at the maturity that God intends for it, We will be fully conformed to the image of Christ. We will be like Him in righteousness and holiness, in intimate fellowship with Him. And you could think of it this way. Christ is the head, and the fullness of Christ the head will be seen and displayed in His body. The body will not fall short of the fullness of its head when it is perfected on the last day. 
Now, I think it's important for us to note Paul's grammar here. Paul's grammar is never accidental. If you note, when Paul describes God's plan for the church, he does not say that Christians individually are to become mature people. Although that's, that's true, all of God's people are to grow in holiness and godliness. Instead, Paul says that the church as a whole should become a mature man. And the difference and the importance is that while each of us are to grow in Christ-likeness, Paul's vision is a corporate one. It's for the whole body of God's people across the nations, across ethnicities, across the ages. The whole body of Christ together will display the fullness of Christ. And I think Jim Boyce puts it so well when he says, Paul is not so much thinking here of individual believers as of the church as a whole. I think this means that the church goes about its business in this world with God working in it to develop one aspect of the character of Jesus Christ in a particular way here and another aspect perhaps more fully there so that the entire church in every place is necessary to manifest the full character of the Lord. And this shouldn't be surprising to us, should it? That we as an individual could not display the entirety of the character of Christ, but that we would need the fullness of the church across ages and across nations and cultures to display the fullness of who God is in Christ Jesus. But you see what this means. If the primary focus here is corporate, not individual, then while I am called to pursue godliness and Christ-likeness myself, if I attain greater holiness, but my brother or sister in Christ does not, then the church, of which I'm just a small part, has not reached the maturity that God desires and intends for it. And this should be just as concerning to us as if our bodies were growing, but our hands stayed child size. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And in addition, if I'm going to be part of the fullness of Christ in this body that he has called to himself, then I need my fellow believers to do so. I need my fellow Christians from across the ages and around the world, from throughout the body of Christ. And that is why the emphasis of this passage again and again is on using the gifts Christ has given to us to minister to one another out of love for one another and care for one another so that the whole body is growing up, is built up into maturity so that all of us together will be marked by the fullness of Christ to the glory of God. Each of us should pursue holiness individually, yes. But Paul's call is that we would minister to one another, that we all grow together in godliness into the fullness of Christ. So this is what Maturity looks like unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood measured by the fullness of Christ displayed in the church. But Paul concludes in verse 14, and I hope you notice there in 14, that if the church matures in this unity of faith and fullness of Christ, it will be less like a child so that it will not be tossed to and fro by waves in every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. You know what this looks like, right? I was thinking about to my own childhood and how quick we are to swing back and forth to the next big thing. I enjoyed collecting things and uh, I remember some of the progressions I went through. There was baseball cards, very into baseball cards. And there were 
beanie babies. Not because I like stuffed animals, but because they were supposed to increase in value fast. (laughs) And then there were those, there was cardboard circles with pictures on them called pogs. I don't know if anyone ever knows those, but I had those for a while. So you go back and forth and my spending habits swing back and forth with each trend. And inevitably, of course, it would see me a few months later at a yard sale, hoping that some younger kid was a year behind the curve and would spend some of his money to to buy what I didn't want anymore. That's how we are. As children, it's a mark of immaturity to swing back and forth and all around. But the same can be true of us spiritually. As the winds of doctrine presented by human cunning can lead us to chase now one philosophy or, or now the next. Things that pull us from God's word and hinder the maturity of the church and even at times threaten to shipwreck our faith. What does that look like? Well, sometimes God's people swing from one theological fad to another. Maybe the church fears compromise with the world and so it jumps on a list of do's and don'ts and and chases a a legalism. Maybe then it swings back and, and says, well, we don't want legalism and so it emphasizes our freedom in Christ and God's grace to such an extent that it becomes antinomianism. It's a big theological word, but it it refers to a position which holds that God's grace is free and how we live in obedience to God is really not that important to our salvation. Maybe it's not a theological fad. Maybe we swing back and forth with the latest particular devotional book that's all the rage and we go from one thing to the next rather than developing a rooted maturity in God's word. But the church is also susceptible to unbiblical philosophies that gain traction in the church. And this is always a danger for us because it's so attractive for us to want to believe in something that the world will at least respect and maybe even find acceptable. We certainly wouldn't want to hold something that the world around us thinks is ridiculous or offensive. And so we are constantly tempted to sand down the edges of the gospel so that it doesn't offend those around us without realizing that if we sand down its edges, we have changed the shape of the gospel so that it loses its truth and its power to save in the process. The crafty schemes, I think, maybe are most often a danger to us in the church. When we recognize something that is legitimately good or legitimately evil that the Bible talks about, But then without realizing it, we adopt the culture's definitions and terms and language and solutions on that topic rather than the Bible's definitions and terms and solutions. And there's so many ways that this can happen, but let me just give two examples. The Bible calls us to recognize oppression and prejudice as evil. It calls us to examine our hearts And to pursue justice. This is a call for the church to actively pursue. Of course our our culture is talking about these things too. And it, it can be tempting to jump on board with our culture's agenda. Because it seems to be using the same terms that the Bible uses. But the danger comes if we miss that the culture's definition and framework for justice is completely different than the Bible's. Our culture's definition and framework for justice is based on our group identity. Maleness, femaleness, transgender, blackness, whiteness, and where that identity automatically places us in power structures. That's very different than the Bible, which 
Biblical justice is focused on legal equality and protecting the vulnerable and equal treatment of each person as a fellow image bearer of God. And the culture's solutions are based on social power redistribution rather than on correcting oppression, repenting of partiality in our hearts, and seeking reconciliation in the gospel. And if we adopt the culture's language and definitions and solutions rather than the Bible's, then we can begin to think and act in ways that are actually biblically unjust and incompatible with the gospel, all the while thinking we are sharing in the Bible's concerns. Of course, the same thing can happen on the other end of the spectrum as well. A love for our country and a recognition of the threats to it and the the evil in our culture can lead us in the church to be blown off course in our focus away from Scripture, to slip into philosophies even like QAnon that also talk about wickedness in our country but feed off of our fear and anger and so distrust and isolation that propose alternate sources of truth and narratives and blow us off course with the result that we actually adopt responses at odds with Scripture while thinking we are standing strong against sin and falsehood. Now, Paul's point here is not political or cultural. He's not blasting away at the culture. Paul's concern is in here. It's in here. It's in the church, in our own hearts. It's to remind us that we need the Word of God preached and the body of Christ ministering to each other. And so, and so brothers and sisters... Do not be caught up by the winds of doctrine which blow us this way and that, or by crafty schemes, but stand fast on the foundation of Scripture that we might grow in maturity to stand in the fullness of the stature of Christ. That's what maturity looks like. That's what we are aiming for. But what will enable the church to grow and to reach this maturity? You know, in life, there's a, there's a diet and a lifestyle that leads your body to grow, to be healthy. And the same thing is true spiritually. So in verses 15 and 16, Paul ends this section by describing the diet that leads to spiritual health and maturity. The diet begins with God's people speaking the truth in love. You see it there in verse 15. You know, this phrase is not so much a call to honesty as it is a summons to confess the truth and to live in line with Scripture, but to do so with love for one another. It's often the case that our personalities can tend to emphasize one of these things or another. Some of us in our personalities courageously speak the truth, but are tempted to lack care for one another and love. Others of us maybe demonstrate great empathy but in the process can end up sacrificing truth in the process. Our personalities can swing to extremes perhaps, but it's important for us to recognize that truth and love are not opposites that we have to sometimes somehow you know, find the middle way in between them here. This passage isn't saying cut this much truth and this much love and you'll find the, the happy medium. No, of course not, because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And the first fruit of the Spirit is love. And so as God's Spirit, who is truth and love, is formed in us, truth and love belong together. They are never opposed to each other. In fact, truth and love cannot be opposed to one another unless the character of God is opposed to itself. In fact, I think we could say, if I do not speak the truth, then I am not actually caring for that person and their good. 
How can I say that I love someone and refuse to speak truth to them, withhold truth to them? And if I do not care for my brother or sister, if I speak truth but without love, without their good in mind, if I'm just here to defend my position, defend myself or or care for what I'm doing, well, I'm not representing truly the character of God. And so our call is to speak the truth in love. The challenge of course, is that we need the wisdom to do this in the given situations God leads us to. But it's so easy to fall off the boat because we deceive ourselves. I know for myself, if I were to speak personally, if I fall off the boat, it tends to be on the side of more empathy rather than speaking the truth fully. And it's so easy for me to say, well, I'm, I'm just trying to be loving here, but the reality is that it's not because I'm too loving that I run into trouble. It's because I care more about others' opinions of me and wanting to avoid conflict with them. And that overcomes what I say. It's not too much love, but lack of truth. And so our call is to love one another with genuine affection, empathy, and desire for one another's good, which will be achieved as we speak, live, and maintain God's truth with wisdom together. How can we hope to do that? There's only one way. It's to be regularly fed by God's word in fellowship with Christ through constant prayer and with his people, that we might see his spirit fill us and shape us in Christ-like, truthful love. That's our first diet for growing in maturity. The second portion of the well-balanced diet comes in verse 16. The church, Paul says, will grow when every member, every joint is working properly. Now, this is a very significant statement. You know what happens, of course, if one part of your body stops working. If your eyes stop working, that impacts the whole body. You can't see. We're blinded. If your kidney stops working, that impacts your whole body. Your whole body is at risk. And, and it doesn't matter how small. None of us looks at one of our fingers and says, well, you know, that's just a really little part I can do without. You can, you can take that. Even without one of our fingers, we are hindered in what we can do. And Paul is saying the same thing about the body of Christ. If one of its members ceases to do what Christ has gifted it to do, the whole body is impacted. And when I taught the communicants class for our seventh graders, I would often tell them that if if they walked through the doors of this church on a Sunday morning and came to Sunday school and then worship and then went home, they have not yet understood what it means to be part of the church. That is not the biblical vision of being part of God's people. Being part of the church involves intentionally coming here together with the goal and the expectation of ministering to one another, of serving one another, of using our gifts for one another's good, for our mutual growth in the faith. And and can you imagine, if you just look around the room, if every single one of us showed up on a Sunday morning with the intent of ministering to one another, encouraging one another, comforting one another, challenging one another, serving one another for each other's good. We'd have the entire church building us up, building each other up into maturity and faith. And we would go home week after week, built up repeatedly so that the church as a whole grows and matures in its Savior. So our diet involves speaking the truth in love and each of us using our gifts for the sake of the body. 
But I don't want you to notice, or I don't want you to overlook Paul's final comment at the end of verse 16. The church builds itself up when it follows this diet, but when it does so in love. You see what Paul says there. The body grows when it builds itself up in love. Love for one another, a heart of steadfast commitment to one another's good, is the heart attitude that is key to this entire process. And that was really Paul's point in his famous love chapter as well, 1 Corinthians 13. Maybe we read 1 Corinthians 13 at a wedding, or or we think about a family loving each other, but that, that wasn't really Paul's focus. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul had just listed all of the spiritual gifts that God had given to his people and called the Corinthians to use those gifts for one another's good for the building of the body. And then after listing all the spiritual gifts, what does he say in 1 Corinthians 13? But if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers or understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. See what Paul's doing? He's saying we're called to use our gifts for one another, but if we're just using our gifts, but we don't actually care about and are committed to one another's good, then the church is not going to grow as it's called to. The church grows when it follows the pattern that God has given us. And it serves one another and ministers to one another with our gifts out of love for one another. That's the pattern that Paul calls us to. But as we end this morning, I want to conclude with, with this encouragement. You know, you can pretty quickly spot the problem when someone is growing older, but they're not maturing. Maybe you've read articles about social trends, extended adolescence, or delayed adulthood, trends where growing young adults are maybe more and more putting off adulthood and its responsibilities as long as possible. I, I read a, uh, an essay by one young woman in her late 20s who, who bemoaned, she said, I look around today and the guys that are available for me to date are more like the kids I babysat than the dads who drove me home. Ouch. We can see that. We recognize that. But we're not always as quick to recognize the problem with spiritual adolescence. Complacency with our sin. A relative isolation from the body. Less than faithful service to one another. Only casual concern for God's word and for holding fast to scripture. These things should be just as jarring for us to see in ourselves and in one another as it is to see a 30-year-old acting like a 12-year-old. Instead, our desire, like, like the high schooler longing to get their driver's license and, and buy their first car, our desire should be to grow up individually and corporately in every way into Him who is our head, into Christ. Of course, that's Paul's whole point here. You see it in verse 15. Growth and maturity are not ends in themselves. The goal isn't just growth for its own sake. This whole growing and maturing process is aimed at growing up into Christ. Just as Christ was the cornerstone on which the whole church is built, so Christ is the head of the body. 
from whom the whole body receives its life and its guidance. It is in intimate union with Christ, following the lead of Christ, that God's people become the mature man he intends for them. Well, of course, we're, we're realistic about our continued sin in this life. We ought to have a hunger and a drive to grow in Christ-like maturity as we use our gifts to serve one another, speaking the truth in love so that we all grow and are built up in Him. That's how we walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And that's what Christ died to secure for His people in His church. So may we pursue this goal with all our strength, with our eyes fixed on Him, trusting Him to complete this process in us to the glory of His name. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. It's our solid foundation, our rock. And how we thank You that You've given us in Your Word this this pattern for Your church. That we all, as we are equipped by the apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers might use the gifts you've given us to serve one another and minister to one another. That we might pursue and attain a unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That we might not be blown by winds of doctrine. That we might speak the truth in love to one another as each of us ministers to each other in love so that your church grows into its head, Jesus Christ, and might display all the fullness of its Savior to the glory of your name. Would you be at work in us, individually and together? Would you do this for your sake? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m., To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.